At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Well, there's been an invasion. 1,800-pound invaders with big, long, hooked horns are covering Australia and destroying the habitat for native species. Buffalo, water buffalo from Asia. If you were hired to go over there and help with the problem, would you choose a 470 Nitro Express or a 375 H&H Magnum or a 270 WSM? Well, I know a gentleman, a dedicated hunter, who chose the 270 WSM, and we're going to talk to him today on Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. Thanks for joining us, everyone. My guest today has been in the industry for longer than I have. I think he started working for Browning in Utah when he was about 20 years old or so. And he has pretty much been dedicated to the shooting and hunting sports for that long. His name is Scott Grange. He's a good friend of mine, and he's a real hunter. And he's the the fan of the 270 WSM. How did that ever happen, Scott? Well, what you have to understand is that as a 17-year-old young man, I was reading much of Jack O'Connor at the time. And uh, my brother was a big 270 guy, okay? And uh, coming from a family of 30 ox 6 the 270 was not looked upon uh, favorably by our father. And when I, (laughs) making a dollar eighty an hour at the golf course in 1971, went out and bought a $370 Browning 270, my dad just about disowned me. Okay, so (laughs) so needless to say, I have been a 270 guy and fan for a long, long time. Now, how did that swing over to the WSM version? Well, uh, you know, even though the 270 was designed for a 130 grain bullet originally, um, I I always thought that it'd be nice to shoot a little heavier bullet at elk, but but I I continued shooting 130s at elk for several years and did just fine because you know as well as I do, you know, you deflate the lungs and place that bullet where it needs to be and and there's really not a lot of debate. You just make a good shot. But nonetheless, I did want to shoot a little heavier bullet. And then in about uh, 2002, when the when Winchester and Browning got together and developed the 270 WSM, I thought, oh, this is this is perfect. This is perfect. I can shoot a little heavier bullet now uh, at elk. I can, or water buffalo, <laughs> or uh, <laughs> or I can shoot the 130s at uh, sheep and antelope. 
So that's kind of, yeah. I mean, the 270 WSM was, uh, for for a kid like me, it was a a real godsend. Yeah. Well, folks, I need to tell you what happened with this water buffalo because I was with Scott. (laughs) And I think he and I were were the only two guys shooting 270 WSMs. Everyone else had a 300. Or a couple of guys might have had the 7. But what they were doing was breaking in this these new WSM cartridges. This would have been around what, 2001? Yeah. Well, well, like it that. was 2000, it was 2002. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yep. so we're over there to do this and Scott and I are thinking, just like he said, put the bullet in the right place. And it really doesn't have to be that heavy and that massive. It's not like you're wrestling these things to the ground. You're deflating their lungs and that's what does it. So Scott has this big bull staring right at us from how far away was that guy? About 125? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. 125 yards. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And I said, Scott, put it right in between his shoulders on his brisket right there. Just see how deeply that little bullet penetrates. What bullet were you shooting? We were shooting the fell safe, if you remember, which was a very grain. stout. Yes. A very stout bullet. Yep. Yep. That was it. Fail safe bullet. Okay. So he says, well, okay, I guess that'll work. He takes the shot. The Buffalo sort of staggers forward like he's going to drop, but then he recovers himself and he turns broadside and starts streaking on out of there. <laughs> and Scott goes into autopilot, jacks it another round, swings, and that Buffalo literally went A over T curls, <laughs> stuck his horns in the ground, his rump went over the top, and he hit the ground stone dead. And we all just got... <gasps> It was just like, oh my goodness, we could not believe it. Do you remember the RPH? He was hollering, bloody good shot, bloody good shot. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we were into him. I rolled him him like a jackrabbit. (laughs) You did. That was something else. And he had hit him right in the spine and the neck (laughs) and gotten 18 inches of penetration. Do you remember how thick the skin, the hide was on that neck? That was my first encounter with a very thick skinned animal. I couldn't believe it. Could not believe (laughs) it. it. And the bullet, the bullet was bumped out on the far side. You can see it just against the hide. Yep. That was perfect. So, so much for the 270 being inadequate for Buffalo. (laughs) <laughs> if you recall, we were the first ones who did not use a big magnum uh, with that pH. He was very, very apprehensive about letting us use those calibers yeah. on water buffalo, but nobody had a problem. Yeah. yeah. No, no. I, I took my buffalo um, on the shoulder, tried to break it, and did break that shoulder. So mm-hmm. I thought, okay, I'm going to finish him off with the next shot the way you did. Uh, but as usual for me, I can hit a neck, but I can't seem to find the spine within the neck. <laughs> so Better he, to be bounced down, he bounced down on his nose and then recovered himself and spun around when he did. So then I shot the other shoulder and then he expired right there. So right, he didn't go right. 10 yards, but yeah, it certainly works. Say, so, Scott, I'd like to, to visit with you a little bit about your career with Browning and then later Winchester. How did that all come about? I mean, you got, you got hired on. You were sort of a local kid, right? Yeah, I was just a kid in high school actually working uh, part-time pulling triggers in research and development. And uh, in 1973, uh, I married my high school sweetheart, uh, started uh, in, into college up at Weber State, and they felt sorry for me, so they gave me a full-time job <laughs> to try to help me along there. But uh, that was—I uh, spent ten years in research and development. And uh, even though I, I ended ended up uh, in 
in public relations and shooting promotions. There was a lot of time in between there, product manager and fishing division and product manager for the Winchester brand, actually. And uh, I ended up uh, taking you guys out and about. And, you know, that's probably where I needed to be. But but I, in the meantime, I got just enough technical knowledge to be dangerous, <laughs> I tell mm -hmm. people. Yeah. Well, you were yeah. sure dangerous on that buffalo, I tell you. <laughs> now, Scott, it's be pretty obvious that you're going to be a Browning fan. I mean, Winchester came on when you were already working Browning before Winchester became a part of Browning, right? Yes, right, right, right around uh, 2001, we took on U.S. Repeating Arms Company, makers of the okay. Winchester Firearms, and mm -hmm. and people questioned that move uh, because they just couldn't figure out why. Browning would want to do such a thing, but they, what they failed to understand is the history of Browning and Winchester and, uh, you know, yeah, T.G. Bennett and, you know, and the agreements between him and, and the Browning boys uh, that lasted 20 years. So there's a tremendous amount of, of Browning, uh, development and, and genius in, in the Winchester, uh, name. And so for oh, us, it seemed like a natural. And as, as you know, U.S. Repeating Arms Company was struggling at the time, and uh, and, and our owners uh, felt like uh, if we could own two pieces of the of the pie, and let me explain that real quick. They did some real heavy research back uh, around 2000 as to as to the American consumer and uh, and the brand names that they knew just right off the right off the top of their heads and even though there are other excellent excellent brands and I've always maintained that you know that there's more than just Browning and Winchester out there but but there were three names that jumped out Browning Winchester and Remington anybody that knew anything about firearms at all at least knew those three names um so our owners Felt like if we owned two pieces of that pie, it would be a good thing, and so we took them on, and 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 that's kind of the history behind why we did and what we did. And then, as you know, it was just many years of of, of redefining the name and and bringing back uh, traditional designs like the control round feed in the Model Seventy. You know, it went away. It went away there for a while, and the, one of the first things we did was to bring that back because that's what the Model Seventy was known for. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you had uh, experience with all of these different firearms and rifles and things. And I know you are an X-Bolt fan right now. Is that not your favorite action? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And and it's not like you've never shot Remingtons and Savage oh, and no. Marlins and all the rest Heavens of them. Heavens no. Heavens no, but but one thing that I have shot the 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 majority of my life is a sixty degree bolt throw. Okay, oh. and so mm -hmm. that. It, that that is is why not only only reason but but the sixty degree bolt throw uh, and I'm just going to say it like it is a push feed system uh, I, even even though my first rifle was a Browning in a Mauser action with a control round feed um, I'm I'm a push feed guy I like dropping a, a round into the chamber on a shooting bench and not having to put it into the magazine and feed it. Um, and as you know, you've, you've seen me and you've had experience yourself, uh, quick follow-up shots. I have never had a problem with, with a push feed system in a panic situation. And if you can see these three guys behind me, there are mm -hmm. two of those, two of those three, and you were on one of them was a panic situation. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, uh, quick follow-up shots, baby. I mean, I've never had a problem.
Oh, speaking of that particular panic situation, we need to tell that story, Scott. <laughs> this, Folks, this is a doll sheep hunt in the Chugach Range of Alaska. Absolutely stunning mountain country. It doesn't get much more beautiful. And we were hunting long and hard and not seeing much of anything and not having any chance to take a ram. And we think we were thinking it's all over. We've got one day left. Scott, take over. Oh, and, and, and Ron and I, uh, we were going to co- uh, commit mutiny. We, we were spent. Okay. We were, it, we were, we were tired. Uh, we, we had put on, I don't know, Lance thought roughly 70 miles in that 10 days. Okay. With our camps on our backs and, and we were done. I mean, we were spent. And, and Lance gets up in the morning at like four and he says, look, I'm, I'm going to go to the top of the mountain. You guys get up, get get something in you, and head up the mountain. So we we struggled out of bed and and threw some oatmeal down and started trudging up the up the mountain and and uh, trudging uh, emphasis I, on tr- trudging. Oh, uh, it was it was horrible. And uh, what was his name? Our 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 guide. Um, oh, long tall guy. He was about seven oh, foot ten. I'll think of it here in a second. Anyway, he's leading the way, and Ron and I are. I mean, we are really, we're bummed out. Our spirits are low. We're tired. We're ready to go home. And all of a sudden, his head pokes over a little ledge and he says, sheep. <laughs> instantly, instantly, we're bionic. <laughs> and, we, and we scramble up the cliff <laughs> and we come over a rise and there's two rams at Ron. What were they? 700 we yards? We figured they were 350. Well, now, now originally, if you remember, they, they were beyond shooting range. Okay. And Lance could see the, he, Lance was above looking down upon us. Yeah, yeah. And he could see everything that was unfolding. And once we got into position, we thought they were going to go over the top of the mountain into the next drainage and we we're going to beeline right. it to the edge, try to get a shot. But when you and right. I got into position, Lance let out a whistle, if you recall, yep. and those sheep. Yep. Heard that and turned and retreated the exact way that they had come, which oh, put them, right. yeah, which put yeah, them yeah. within, within, uh, I don't know. You tell me. I, I, I was guessing they were at 3,350. All of. On the, uh, yes. I, oh, I mean, yeah. Minimal would be 350. Oh, we yeah, didn't yeah. have a rangefinder. Yeah. Not at the moment. It rolled nope. down the mountain, remember? We, we, <laughs> yes, we, I did. We, we found it later. It rolled down the mountain. It was a Leica, by the way, it was, and it was just yeah. fine. It was just fine. Yeah. But So these two rams, they looked like twins. They uh, they retreated to within range, and and I had I had dropped my pack. I had three cartridges in the in the magazine and one cartridge in my back pocket, and we crawled into position. And Ron, tell them what you were shooting. (laughs) (laughs) I was shooting the brand new 243 WSSM, Manchester Super Short Magnum. I called Ron. I said, do you want to be the first human to shoot a sheep with a WSSM? He says, I'm on. Yes. I'm on. I'm on. So Ron's shooting a 243. I'm, of course, shooting the 270. And again, I was shooting fell safe back then. And I said, look, you go, you go left, I'll go right. And we opened up, I, I touched off and nothing happened. I was in disbelief. Yeah, and then I shot after and Then you Ron did. shot and the two Rams went different directions. Ron's went up. Running mine, full speed. Right. Mine went down. 
I shoot again and nothing happens. And I, and I said to my, the outfitter, I said, am I shooting over him? And he says, I don't know. So I, I under him. I thought he was, I was shooting under him. Shoot so low, I held, yeah. I held over his back. He stopped now. He stopped. He's just stopped. Yeah. So did yours. Cause you, <laughs> I'll let, I'll let you tell him where you I'll shot yours. I'll tell that part after you're done. Yeah. <laughs> so my ramp stopped and yeah. I, anyway, I've got one bullet left. Okay. And my heart is in my throat. I bolt it in and hold just on his back and touch off. And that, and that ram tipped over against the hill. So before I tell them what happened, you tell them about your ram. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we're, we're both blazing away at these running sheep. I remember after our first shots and we didn't get any reaction out of those rams. No. I was like, what did we miss? Did we, sh-? I didn't see any dust fly. Right. What happened? I don't know, but should we wait for them to stop? And you said, Wait, heck, by the time they stop, they could be over that mountain. We better shoot while they're running. Oh, my gosh. Now we've got to take running shots. So that's where we were shooting our second and third shots or so. I remember, though, that we missed one. I think I, I know I shot in front of my ram close enough that the rocks bursting in front of him and I shot over, and I shot, I shot over mine and saw the rocks fly. Yeah, yeah yes, yeah. that's where that was our first clue. Right. So now mine is running straight away, which is a great sheep shot because all you have to do is aim between the horns <laughs> and drop it in there somewhere. So I just held over his head and he ran up into the shot, and then he stopped and turned broadside and was just locked up on the hillside, going nowhere. So I figured I've got him. Now let's see what's going on with yours. And I spun around. And Glasswell, you shot and called that high shot, I think. Right, you saw did. saw fur fly off the top of it when you made that shot, and he went over. And then you said, okay, now let's go back to yours. And he was still standing there broadside. <laughs> Same thing. I aimed high, dropped it right in there, and he tipped over. We had them both lying out there. And those last shots were 450 yards away. Yeah, That's yeah. crazy. But that's some of the stuff you have to do. That's why I always tell guys. Work on long-range shots. It doesn't mean you have to shoot game initially at that distance. Right. But, boy, when the stuff hits the fan and you need to make that follow-up shot, right. it sure is nice to know how to do it. Yep. Yep, it is. Now, t- tell them what happened when we examined those bit when oh, So I thought, I am so lucky because I finally got a bullet in the ram. <laughs> we get over there, and, and, and there's three bullet holes that far apart. <laughs> behind his right shoulder and and <laughs> wow. i was shooting through him like a hot knife through butter with that fell safe bullet <laughs> i was doing the same thing with mine i was shooting 95 grain ballistic silver tips which one would think well if the fail safe is too too hard yeah this one would be too soft <laughs> well at those distances they were both pretty much acting the same <laughs> yeah. yeah and my first shot had been right behind the shoulder mm-hmm. just like yours but my next shot that I hit him with when he was going straight away, I took out one of his important um, <laughs> organs, shall we say, <laughs> that was dangling in the rear somewhere. And that's what made him stop frozen on the hillside until I got the last shot into his chest. And the reason why he was still standing there when we went back to him, because he was hollering, please shoot me. Just shoot me. <laughs> my life is over. <laughs> Oh man! Oh my gosh! Yeah, that was that was that was a day to remember. Remember how 
absolutely gorgeous it was. Oh, when it, the sun it, had finally it, come the, out. The weather had been so so bad and and so cruddy for so long, and that morning it was beautiful. It was warm. The 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 ravens were flying up above, calling out. It was it was absolutely picture perfect. I'll never forget it. Not it ever. Yeah, it it was the finest final day of a sheep hunt I've ever had. Yeah, just just it absolutely was, glorious. It was cool. Fall color was on. Oh, what a yeah. hunt. Yeah. All right. Let's get back to your 270. Um, so your WSM, as you said, you like it because it's pushing 150 grain bullet. Well, obviously you can shoot 150 grain bullets in the regular 270, but you're not getting the velocity you probably want. Right. 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 I've told people for years, if you're going to shoot 150 until the WSM came out, if you're going to shoot 150 grain bullet, you might as well be shooting a 30 out six because it allowed performance. So, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, it was the, the regular 270 was just not made for 150 grain bullet. Scott, let's get back to the uh, the rifles that you've worked with over the years. You know, you mentioned earlier that Browning and Winchester had this relationship going clear back to what 1885. The the mm -hmm. original Winchester single shot 85 rifle was with John Moses Browning design, yeah. and I think he made that far back as what 78 when he started working yes, on that. That's correct. Yeah. 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 So Winchester discovered it, bought the patent from him, I guess. Well, and that started a. Yeah, that was the beginning of the relationship with, and, and it was it was made here in Ogden, Utah, uh, by the Browning boys and T. G. Bennett from Winchester. He he kept hearing about this falling block action that was so superior to everything that was out there. So he hopped on a, on a train in in Connecticut and came out west and uh, and and introduced himself and. Yes, from that point on, the agreement was every design that John M. Browning came up with, uh, Winchester had first right of refusal on those designs. And mm -hmm. they ended up purchasing many designs that never went to market just to keep them out of the hands of the con uh, competitors. Yeah. Sure. What are some of the more famous ones that they did market? Oh, heavens. Uh, Model 94, 1873, the 1886. 1880, 1886 is my favorite rifle of all times. It's just, it's so cool. It's big. It's heavy. It's 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 a man-sized rifle, if you will. I know that's very inappropriate <laughs> these days, but it is. Um but the reason I like it is because the history behind it. Here's all these designs that that John M came up with, but for the most part, they were they were uh, hand you know pistol handgun uh, cartridges that that for the most part that that they handled. And T G Bennett came to, to to Browning and and said, "Look, John, we need a repeater that'll shoot." the uh, the big the big calibers 45 70s 45 mm -hmm. 110s 45 90s whatnot. Uh, we've got a single shot, uh, of course, a falling block, but we want a repeater. Well, John already had that design in his head. Okay, he was the guy was incredible. He was a genius. There's no no question about it. So he offered him a bunch of money if he could come up with it in a certain amount of time. And John John came up with it in about half half as long as it uh, originally was agreed upon. And so he and Matt, his brother, who was kind of the business sense of the uh, of the of the group, hopped on a train. Went back to New Haven, Connecticut, to show T.G. Bennett this this design. It was the 1886, and um, the night before he showed it to to Bennett, 
Bennett's assistant took him to dinner, and and as he was saying good night, he says, "John, can I can I take a peek at what you brought?" And John said, "Well, sure." So he takes him up to his hotel room, and in a, in a bunch of in a rolled up thing of uh, butcher paper, he unrolls says 1886, and and the man was a set lever action guy, and he just cycled the action and fondled it and looked at it, and he looked at John, and he says, "John." I, I am holding the history of Winchester here right now. And so the the, the rumor, and, and, and I think it's pretty correct, the story goes that John M. and Matt came home because they always dealt in cash, okay? They came home with as much money for that one design as existed in Ogden, Utah Territory at the, at the time. How'd you like to have that buying power? Yeah. <laughs> now you know why John. Oh, now, now you know why Browning owned most of Northern Utah because <laughs> he, he could buy it. <laughs> wow! I didn't realize there was that much money involved. You know, you see the actual numbers, and it's like no big deal. But uh, considering inflation, I see where the change comes. Yeah, in. right. I love that story. Oh yeah, there's so many great stories about that. We should probably tell the one about uh, when he went to Remington. Yes. To, with a different design when he wanted different money. But before we do that, I just want to make a little historical context here. When was the International Continental Railroad put together at Promontory Point off of Salt Lake? It was put to 1868. 68 was May 10th, 1868. 68. Yes. Okay. So 68 and 10 years later, Browning has developed a single shot. Right. The 18, which became the 1885. Right. So Winchester is traveling. It's only been 10, 12 years since the rail travel to the West was even possible. Correct. Prior to that, they'd have, they'd have been oh. riding horses or taking the stagecoach <laughs> that, or something. That's why TG never came out before that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just funny the way that all came together to make this possible. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So now let's tell tell the story about Browning finally saying, you know, I'm get I'm buying I'm selling Winchester these these patents and they're making all the money with the guns. Right. I'd like to make some kind of a different deal. Right, right. And he had what model gun did he have that he was trying to sell? It that was way? the Auto Five semi-auto shotgun. Okay. Yes. And and there was no such thing at the time. This was a revolutionary system that was going to turn the world literally upside down. Okay. It, it that gun literally ushered in some of the many uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Uh, limits and laws and whatnot, because they knew if they didn't start limiting the sportsman's abilities to to shoot birds um, and put limits on it, they were going to wipe out the resource with this gun. They were. Mm -hmm. And so John M. designed the the Auto 5 shotgun, first semi-auto shotgun in existence. And Matt, again, being the business sense, said, John, we are not going to give this one away. Okay, we're going to get royalties off of this gun. And uh, so they traveled back to New Haven, Connecticut, and met with TG. And TG Bennett was very stern and said, gentlemen, that's not how we've done business for for 20 years, you know. Uh, and they could not come to terms with, with Bennett. And so they shook hands after uh, 20 years, and John M. walked out up the street to Remington, made an appointment to meet with the president the next morning, went back to his hotel, went to bed, woke up, eight o'clock, he's sitting in the foyer waiting for his meeting, and <clears throat> the president of Browning's assistant, or excuse me, of Remington, his assistant came out as white as a sheet, 
And that gentleman had, had tipped over of a heart attack and died right there that morning. So John M. The president of Remington. What's that? The president of Remington had a heart attack yes. and died right there in the office? Yes, he died. That morning they're going to have the meeting. Right there, right on the spot. So John gets up, go down to the telegraph office, sends his little sweetheart back here in Ogden Territory. A message says, honey, I'll see you in about two months. I'm sailing to Belgium. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to sail to Belgium. And so, I mean, the things that these people did back then is, is just beyond my ability to wrap my head around. So he jumps on a ship because Belgium was noted for, for quality gun making for uh, eons, okay? I mean, they had hundreds of years of, of, of history over there, and he knew that. And so he jumped on a ship and, and sailed to Belgium, uh, established a relationship with them, and they started making the... Uh, the auto five shotgun. Pretty incredible. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Winchester really missed that one. Yeah. And, the, and they eventually realized that. And, but uh, kind of a cool yeah. piece of history anyway. You know, Scott, one of the things that I find quite amazing is for all of the brilliant designs that John Moses Browning came out with for Winchester. Mm -hmm. Today we have a company called Browning Firearms. And they also make or sell ammunition. Browning ammunition. Right. Uh, and you've got a, a wonderful line of shotguns and rifles, but your current best selling rifle must be the X Bolt, correct? Correct. Yep. No question about and it. The X Bolt was not was not designed in any way by John Moses Browning. No. No. Um he had no hand. No, he did not. And uh a, a quick piece of of evolution history. Um uh, up until uh <clears throat> the mid seventies. The early seventies to mid seventies, uh, the, the the bold action Browning was manufactured in Belgium, and uh, you probably know this, but but they utilized several different uh, actions. They used uh, Seiko and uh, Mauser, okay, and uh, mm -hmm. and these were produced for uh, well up until uh, roughly nineteen seventy eight, uh, when the rifle became very expensive to uh, produce. And we looked at a uh, an alternative system, which uh, at the time Joe Badali was a head gun designer. He was given the task to come up with a um, a new bolt action uh, Browning, uh, and thus the BBR came to market, if you recall. And it was a push feed system, and it employed nine small locking lugs uh, and a, a sixty degree bolt throw. So even the BBR had a 60 degree bolt throw. Um, it, it, it was a big, it was a big heavy gun. Uh, and, and if you remember Ron back then, it was just, the, it, uh, the market was just starting to fall in love with mountain style rifles. Okay. A lighter weight, right. whatnot. Well, the BBR was a very heavy rifle. And so Joe, uh, was given the task of, of taking the BBR and, and and scaling it down, if you will, and and lightening it up, and so um, if uh, if if you recall, um, the the next rifle in the line was the A bolt, okay, and the and the A bolt was a much lighter rifle. It also uh, eventually came out in composite stocks and on all good things, but but 
then then the market started go to going to lower profile guns and even a little bit lighter weight guns and so our engineers went back to work joe had retired by then and our new gun designers went to work and scaled the the uh, a bolt down and and came up with the x bolt okay uh which which is the same system that is in the line today uh in many configurations as you know and um and that's kind of the history behind that yeah what significant improvements or differences are there between the a bolt and the x bolt uh different magazine okay the a bolt uh, employed a rotating uh, a drop. Uh, it didn't drop out of the, the gun, but it rotated out the bottom, if you recall. And that hinge uh, made for a little deeper profile, which which we wanted to get rid of. And so the, the X-Bolt uh, employed a, uh, a dropout uh, polymer magazine, okay? And, uh, and that en enabled us to lower, lower the profile, slim things up a little bit. Okay. Uh, ergonomically, uh, it was just a, a, a cleaner, uh, sleeker design. Okay. Uh, uh, we also went in and enhanced the trigger a little bit, uh, made some modifications to the trigger to make it a little, a little more crisp. Even though the Able had a good trigger, um, anything can be improved upon. And and that's that's an area that they that they looked at, um, but the barrels from the A bolt and the X bolt were the same barrel. Came off the same line. Nothing changed. It was a buttoned rifling. It was not a cut rifling. Uh, it was a button, and um, and we did not. I mean, why would you want to change something that was so good? The A bolt was was it was known for its accuracy. And 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 so is the X bolt today. Out of the box, out yeah. of the box accuracy. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah, that's what I found. And I've noticed just what you're saying. I've noticed how trim and slim that X bolt is. To me, it's the slimmest, trimmest bolt action hunting rifle on the market. I can't think of one that I can grasp as easily as yeah. that. Yeah, it's just. But one thing we did do but, and maintain was the sixty degree bolt throw. I'm just, I'm a real lover yeah. of that. I really am. Yeah, and I can appreciate that too much. I mean, I use everything, sure. Scott. You know sure. that. I just it's part of my job. I yep. and and I've always enjoyed the Winchester, the Model Seventies, and Mauser actions, and all the classics. But boy, when I get used to shooting that X bolt or the A bolt and that short little bolt throw, yep. you mix the the short lift at sixty degrees with the short action cartridge. Yep. Man, you've just got a, a slim, trim, light, handy, yep. quick rifle. Yep. Not that we need quick, you know, guys like you and me will be kill everything with the first shot. It's like, who needs a repeater? We should be using 85s, right? Well, can you see this? Can you see that guy in the background right there? Oh, yes, I okay. do. Okay. That was, and I proved it because the kid was filming it. I shot him three times in nine seconds. Okay. <laughs> Three times in nine seconds. Yeah, yeah. So, so sometimes, sometimes that sixty-degree bolt throw does come in handy. <laughs> so there's a little inspiration behind that shooting, I imagine. Oh, baby, is there ever? <laughs> <laughs> hey, Scott, you mentioned the button rifling. Uh, not everybody understands what button rifling is. Yeah. Could you give us an explanation? Well, What's the difference yeah, between cut rifling? Yeah, and in the old days, uh, most of your rifles were cut, meaning meaning they had a uh, 
they had a they had a reamer. Uh, they would go through. They would drill a hole in the barrel, and then and then they would literally in graduations they they would draw a uh, rod or a button type uh, 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 object through the bore and take and just take off a couple of thousandths at a time until they reached the depth of the riflings that they wanted. And uh, so they're they're literally cutting literally the steel. Literally cutting and removing the steel, okay? And okay. back when, I mean that was that was the only way they did it and and so when uh the term button came along what they would do is they would uh drill the hole through the barrel then they would ream it to a certain diameter, which was undersized. Then what they had is they had a button. They called it a button. It was it was more of a, 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 a if you took a a bullet and and made it oh two and a half inches long, it had the riflings on it. Okay, the button had the riflings on it. And what they would do is they would they would draw that button. Uh, they do draw that button through that bore and and it and it does not it does not relieve or cut or remove material it 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 literally displaces it and and if you know anything about work hardening metal um if you if you if you work harden metal it's a tougher uh stronger metal and so the way we marketed uh, uh, the button rifling to get Get it past the the consumer that the only knew of of cut riflings. Uh, that's how we would explain it. <clears throat> that that rifle is probably you're gonna you're gonna shoot more bullets through that rifle uh, than you will a cut rifle simply because it's work hardened. Okay, and so the button that you're pulling through, say you're doing a thirty caliber. Mm-hmm. Well, we know that the bullet is a three oh eight, so that would be the button size three oh eight. But only only a raised portion of it, which would then be the grooves once it was pulled Correct. through, right? Correct. Yes. Yes. Okay. And then something has to spin it. If you have a one in ten twist, how do you twist that button well, it, as it's coming? There, through the there is a machine similar to a lathe. Okay, uh, it, for those folks uh, that are familiar with lathes, it turns at a a certain speed uh, over a certain uh, distance. Okay, that's all geared accordingly, mm-hmm. and it just draws that through there at a slow pace, at a right hand twist, if you will, and just slowly rotates that button uh, through that bore. Okay, so the rotation is matching the the pull of the barrel or the pull of the rod on which the button is Correct. attached. They pull that through the barrel at a certain speed, and then it twists at a certain rate to get Correct. your Correct. twist rate. So you're literally ironing grooves into yeah, the Yeah, that's a way of putting it. That's yeah, yeah. Right. yeah, that's a good way of putting it. That, uh, uh-huh. Pressing yep. it. And that's what gives you the work hardening because you've, you've stressed that metal, you've worked it. Correct. And it's pressed. Yeah. Does it spring? Does it spring back at all? Do they have to compensate for some spring? Well, back? you know, uh, a button will wear out just like a drill bit or anything else, and so yet yeah, all sure. of those factors are taken into consideration. And so, uh, yes, there is, there is a, 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 a certain amount of relaxing. Okay, that the material will mm-hmm. do. Uh, all of that is engineered in, into the design, and what they do is they'll check. Um, 
they'll uh, run a, a quality check every X number of rifles to make sure that that button is not wearing out. And once it does, of course, they, they replace the button and, and start the process over again. Neat. Yeah. yeah. That's just fun to understand how that stuff works. Now, you mentioned the increased barrel life because of the hardening. There is something else you can do to barrels to increase their their life. When people talk about, oh, I burned my barrel out because that's such a, like a two. 220 Swift yep. or the 223 WSSM yep. and all barrel burnout stuff. What's another thing you do to prevent Well, that? in the case of the uh, super shorts, the WSSMs, uh, we knew that, especially in the 223 caliber, that uh, unlike the 243 WSSM and the 25 WSSM, which basically matched the same ballistics as a two, uh, 243 Winchester and a 25 out 6, the 223 was now the fastest going to be the fastest 22 caliber on uh, uh, production gun on the market on the planet? Okay, uh, yeah. I mean it, it. It was, and we knew that. And so, in that case, we went in and chrome lined those barrels. Now that's a that's an operation in itself, if you think about it, Ron. Because when you chrome something, that adds that adds to tolerances, okay? That the uh, yes, yeah. and so all of that, yes, all of that had to be taken into consideration. We went to great, great pains to uh, to make sure that the uh, bore di- bore and groove diameters remained uh, within SAMI specification, uh, but yet we we knew in order to provide appropriate barrel life on that two two three super short, we're going to have to chrome line the barrels which which there's other companies that have that have done that as well but um it was a new venture for us so before mm-hmm. we sold the first rifle in 223 super short the, the 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 experts out there okay were were bad mouthing it uh, saying that barrels were being burned up and and there were feeding problems and all kinds of before we even put the first gun on the shelf and that's that that I'll tell you drives me crazy. It just drives you crazy when that happens. But anyways, uh, such is life. But we did an extensive test and found that uh, those chrome line two two three super short barrels were not wearing out any quick any quicker than a standard twenty two two fifty barrel. Yeah. Hmm. So how many rounds would you get? Did you do some longevity tests? Yes, and I, I knew you were going to ask number? me that, but and, and it's so long ago I can't remember. I think it was a billion or something like that. I'm just kidding, but <laughs> about as many rounds as you, ah, yeah, you and I shoot on a prairie dog hunt. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, but it was it was it was a lot. It, it was it was significant. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's crazy stuff. So what are you doing these days, Scott? I'm doing uh, anything that my wife tells me to do. Okay. Oh, yes. I wake I wake up in the morning and there's a list of things to do. And Get uh, your orders? Yes, yes. I get those done. Uh, then I check and see if there's any uh, grandkids uh, high school f- baseball or basketball or football games today. And then uh, I plan my, <laughs> plan my schedule accordingly. <laughs> are you uh you're probably not involved in any shooting competitions shotgunning or anything like that not really i go to a a few sporting clay shoots here and there because i really enjoy i really enjoy uh sporting clays but um no i just uh there's just 
a lot of other things to do. I'll be honest with you. I've gotten some really good projects done uh, at my home here that I've wanted to do for years. And, you know, when you travel 120, 125 days a year, you, you just, it's all you can do to keep the lawn mowed, you know, seriously. And yeah. so. Oh, you, you actually kept the lawn. Yes, up, huh? but I work. <laughs> I just, I just did gravel. I, well, I should do that this year because we don't have any water. You know that there's no water out there. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, oh yeah. But no, it's it's all good, and uh, keep putting in for that that last bighorn tag that you know for my. I need that one for my grand slam. What do you, what do you That's missing? That's a bighorn. You just missing the yeah. big, just yeah. a bighorn, yeah. really. Oh man, well, yeah. So where did you get the desert? Uh, Sonora. I finally threw my hands in the air year before last and <sighs> said, "I'm never going to draw a permit." And uh, which which really killed me because I went down there and got my desert. And here in Utah, all my bonus points are for desert. <laughs> so, yeah, oh. yeah. So that kind of. But you'll, you'll probably never get no, it. No, probably. I mean, anybody stands a chance. That's that's one good thing about the system in Utah. Everybody stands a chance of drawing. Um, but uh, now nah, it's pretty slim, pretty slim chances. But that's okay. Yeah. I've thought about that unlimited so, hunt up in Montana. I may do that. I may give that a try. That's a tough one. I tried that it when is. I was a young man in my twenties, and it killed me. So hmm. I know, but I know. you know, you got to do something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I'm missing the desert, so I think both of us are in that three quarter slam club. Yeah, I real. I thought you had that desert. I'll be darned. Huh. No, no, I never, never tried that. I hate drawing for tags. I don't I know. know what it's about. For me, hunting is is reality. An escape to reality is the way I like mm -hmm. to put it. You know, mm -hmm. when you're done with all the stresses of your work life and everything else, you want to escape back to the simple life of being a hunter. Right. Having to put in all these tags and jump through all these hoops just kind of ruins it for me. Yeah. And I, and I get that. I understand that, but, but it's necessary to, you know, so you don't wipe your species out. We all know that, but. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. You've got yeah. to manage that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's just well, you the, guys, the process. you you guys have done your job too well. You've created a whole mess of hunters, serious hunters out there. And I'm talking serious hunters uh, yeah. that, that are in good shape, uh, hardcore, have all the toys. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so it makes it, makes it difficult to draw those permits. But I will say this, after two grueling sheep hunts up north, that Sonora hunt, it was a gentleman's sheep hunt. I will tell you really? that. I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I had a bed to sleep in every night, uh, real food on the table. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I will never eat another piece of spam in my life. Okay. Not ever. I won't. I won't touch it. When I see those commercials on food. Oh, it's horrible. Horrible. When I see those advertisements on TV, I almost throw up. Yeah. <laughs> and and here there are people thinking that you've enjoyed the life of a, a big game hunter and all the glories of being up in the wilderness and here you're eating spam <laughs> spam well i tell people all the time sheep hunts are the most money you'll spend being the most miserable you'll ever be <laughs> yeah scott yes I, you're probably not going to go up and climb the mountains in alaska and sleep in the snow again for sheep but are you hunting africa um, have hunted Africa a, a couple of times. Yes. Uh, plains game only. I've not hunted dangerous game. 
Um, oh. uh, I know I, I want, I want a Buffalo really bad, but I, I refuse to shoot one in South Africa. I want to go like you and Betsy did and go do the, go do the real thing as a walk, you yeah. know, go into swamps up to my armpits and follow the oh, herd. Yes. And that's what I want to do. But I love well, Africa. Why don't you come along with us? We're going to go back this September. We're going to be um, waiting the swamps again. All it takes is an invite uh, up till now. I've never been invited. You've got the invite, you, but you're going to have to probably come up with the cash because we can't oh. handle that part of it. Well, I'm on fixed income now. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you and I are going to have to put together an African hunt in that case. I, I've got a few connections over there, so I think we're going to probably have to harass a buffalo or have the buffalo harass us. I would love and that. And I promise you won't sleep in the snow. That's uh, That's okay. That's okay, but right. I don't. I don't like snakes either. But what the heck? Oh, I can't promise anything on that one. <laughs> well, listen, Scott. I really want to thank you for visiting with us. It was great to tell the old stories again, man. Absolutely. All we were missing was a campfire. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been an honor to be a part of it. I, I've really enjoyed it, Ron. Yeah, I think folks are going to really enjoy listening to your stories. We'll probably have to do it again sometime. So uh, let's Anytime. try that. Anytime. All right. We'd love, love All to. Right. Many thanks, Scott. You're welcome. Hey, everyone. That was Scott Grange, a longtime uh, employee of Browning and Browning Winchester Guns. He, as I said, to start of this, the man not only knows his guns and his hunting, but he knows his history. And it's really fascinating to listen to his stories. So uh, until next time, when we will desperately try to find somebody who can keep up with <laughs> Scott's level of entertainment here. This is Ron Spomer signing off with his usual hunt honest, shoot straight. That has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6 8 Western. Oh, a mule there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.